Good morning and happy Sabbath, church family. It is a privilege to be here. And I might add that uh, my wife and I, every time we've had the privilege of being here, I've absolutely loved the music of this church. What a blessing that God has given this church. Thank you, Joe. That was beautiful. I first of all need to make a disclaimer. The Illinois Conference had nothing to do with your new pastor coming. Got your attention, didn't I? God orchestrated through the power of the Holy Spirit. And I want to thank the uh, personnel committee and the team that worked uh, uh, tirelessly to, to align with the Spirit's um, choice for your pastor to come. We're excited about uh, pastor Bartholomew. I know I'm not saying it right, but that's okay. I also want to thank uh, Elvis, your head elder, for, for taking the risk of allowing me to take this pulpit. We'll talk later. <laughs> I'd like to pray before we begin this morning. Father, I want to step aside and allow your Holy Spirit to work through the words that are said. And I want to pray a special blessing on this church family as they also move into the new chapter with a new pastor coming in. May it be an incredible blessing to this church and to the community. In Jesus' name, amen. They were probably wondering, why are we in this situation? They were faithful to the words and, and the prophecies of Jeremiah. They listened when he said the warning about not, of a turning from idolatry. They worshiped the one true God only. But here they were. In the sun, the blistering sun, probably blisters on their feet. Times of fatigue and hunger and thirst, making the thousand-mile journey from Jerusalem to Babylon. Why were they in this situation? Probably separated from family and maybe have lost some loved ones in this siege. But what lied ahead, what was ahead of them, didn't know. There was a lot of uncertainty in captivity. Was it going to be hard labor? Were they going to be, they were going to be enslaved? They were lose their freedoms? Would they face death in this experience? They didn't know. A lot of anxieties, I can imagine. But as they finished that grueling journey, they came to the magnificent city of Babylon, and then there was an inspection. Each one of the captives came before some type of inspection system, and some went to the field to work, some went to the construction sites to work, and some were chosen to be in the circle of the king. Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael were the four mentioned by name. And they had the qualities and the gifts and the wisdom to be chosen to be a part of the king's inner circle, to be a part of the court. And the stories of their life, I believe, can bring us a lot of hope and courage today as we look ahead or we look at the surrounding, this, the landscape of the world today, and we face what we're about to face where it says in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, times of trouble such as never was before. How can their lives and their stories give us hope and give us that courage today? I want to walk down that path with you together. He was a very bright and creative young man. His name was Frank Abagnale. Maybe you've heard that name. 
But he was so close to his family, loved his mother and father, and, and, and whatever, a series of events, they, they split up, they divorced, and it was so traumatic to young Frank. It tore him up. And he ended up going to live with his father, and after a short time, he got into a little bit of trouble. It was a petty theft situation with a, with a gas card, and, and the, the reaction of the father was immediately to send him to a reform school, of which he was so excited about. He lasted a short time there, and he decided at the age of 16 he would find a way away from that reform school, and he began a journey into his life on his own. Now, his father owned a stationery company, so Frank uh, was intuitive as to how things kind of worked in the stationery business, and he, 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 he learned a trade. It wasn't a very good trade, but he learned how to duplicate things. And his first duplication, we can use the word forging, was his license. Instead of being 16, suddenly his new license said that he was 26. Because you see, if he was a little bit older and by age, he was going to have better job opportunities. And so he went from different jobs. But he was so good and so successful with the, the uh, license that he decided to venture out a little bit and, and broaden his horizon. And then he started to forge checks very successfully. And he, he, he timed it in such a way as after he would forge a few, he would suddenly transition to another bank and forge a few more. He's so good at it. But between the ages of 15 and 21 years old, there was a, a lot of things that he was involved in that were, were precarious. For example, he impersonated a Pan Am pilot. He, uh, he forged the FAA license. He, he studied up on all the lingo. He knew just how to converse with the other um, pilots. And of course, he, he was good with the ID, so he forged that too. And he, <laughs> when it was all said and done, well before that, he, uh, he had figured out a way to, to actually get his hands on a Pan Am uh, pilot's outfit. And then he would go into the bank and he would have his forged Pan Am checks and successfully make a lot of money. And he, he, was, he went on more than 250 flights, so he logged over like a, a million travel miles before it was all said and done. Then he got bored. Then he decided to venture into something else. So he, what better next step than to be a pediatrician? Again, with the gift of forging, he, he got all the proper licensure. Um, he was uh, delivering babies. And he was so charismatic, he was actually supervising the new interns. Except when the reality came that because he realized he really didn't know what he was doing, a child almost lost their life and he decided that's enough here. But that wasn't the end of his story. He decided, well, it would be amazing to go into education. I've always kind of wanted to be a teacher, so suddenly he was a professor of sociology at Brigham Young University. And then later he became a Louisiana lawyer, all the proper forgings in place, as he did. And, and over the course of that period of time and, and several years beyond, 
the total was about $2.5 million in forged checks. But all good things must come to an end, right? And they caught him in Europe. And he was sentenced to a number of years in prison. And after five years, he had a visit by some distinguished gentlemen in black suits, better known as the Federal Bureau of Investigation. They've been kind of following his interesting life and how successful he was at what he did, and so they, they decided to hire him and, and remove the penalties of the law. If he would stay with them, they probably had an ankle, ankle bracelet, I'm just guessing, but he, he was so good at identifying fraud and security issues that he began working with the FBI, and that was a bit of a risk. That's just from my point of view. So he became a consultant for 30 years and decided it's time for me to venture into my own business. I've served my time with the FBI, now I'm gonna go into my own securities business and, and I think to date he was a multi-multi-millionaire through what he did there. Did extremely well. He found God in the process. And he decided, since he knew the FBI so well, he had hired an investigator. And in true Zacchaeus form, he made sure that investigator went back to every single organization or person or bank or whoever it was and find out who he scammed, and he paid every one of them back as best he could. Well, how did Frank become so successful as an imposter? So good at his craft. I believe, and we'll, we'll follow this story towards the end, but I believe it's something as we look into our world and our situation and, and we can be a bit overwhelmed by everything going on around us and, and in some ways kind of, kind of being, being uh, deterred from everything, discouraged by everything. But I believe some things in his journey can teach us about how to face our future unafraid. So they were counted among the 10,000 in Nebuchadnezzar's siege that happened in 587 B.C. in Jerusalem. And again, they had chosen the best and the brightest. They looked for the, for the architects, and they looked for the scientists and the mathematicians and, and even government leaders. But they had a plan, the Babylonians and all of the countries that conquered, it was pretty common. What they would do is they would begin a strategic brainwashing. And they would indoctrinate you into their culture. They would immerse you in, in their religions and, and, and all their systems of government and everything. And you learn the language along the way. And the first thing they did with these four men was they changed their names. And Daniel, which, which meant literally God is my judge, became Belshazzar. And Mishael literally meant he belongs to God, became Meshach. And, and Hananiah, which his name meant Jehovah is gracious, became Shadrach. And then we have Azariah, which means Jehovah helps, became Abednego. But all these, just keep in mind, are names of Babylonian gods. The indoctrination had begun. The word Babylon, just that very word, meant literally the gate of the gods. And we know we're familiar with this term Babel. We probably, most of us know what it means. It means confusion. 
In Jeremiah 50, verse 38, as, de- as he was describing the culture of Babylon, he used the word an insane amount of idolatry. It was just immersed throughout their culture everywhere. Multiple gods. Today, it's interesting. Hello. <laughs> ready for baptism. Let's, <laughs> let's not wait. Let's just get the water ready. <laughs> oh, she's adorable. Today in our own world, and this I think is a low estimate, there are over 270 religions. You want to talk about significant confusion, we live in it, in our culture. And each one of those gods had their own temples, and largely many of them had their own high priests and and priestesses, and they worshipped air, they worshipped sun, they worshipped the moon, they worshipped water, they worshipped storms, they worshipped the mind and wisdom, they worshipped the heaven and the star, they worshipped just about anything in, in animate or inanimate nature. They also worshipped fertility, those of the humankind and those of the earthly kind. But just as far as the city itself, as, they have, as uh, they've made discoveries, as they've learned and read the history, as they've uncovered things, they realize that this was a far advanced culture in art and in, in science and education. They even had a law and a legal system. They had a moral code within all of this. They took care of their orphans and their widows and the poor among them. They had a very sophisticated system. Their wall was 22 feet high and and claimed to be impregnable. But we look at today's world and we realize that man glorifies in his own achievements. We see parallels. I'd like to take us to the book of Daniel. Let's turn there to Daniel chapter 2, if you would. Daniel chapter 2. We're going to begin with verse 48. As we know, this is just following the interpretation of a very important dream. And then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief administrator of all the wise men of Babylon. Also, Daniel petitioned the king, and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat at the gate of the king. Now, there's a lot to this story that we may not read into, but can you imagine what just took place here? In this scenario, these four men are now in a place where they have all the perks of leadership in the highest courts of Babylon, of King Nebuchadnezzar. They had all of the wealth you can possibly imagine, all of the best of clothing and food and and the Harvard education. They had the power and influence that many just dreamed about having right there at their fingertips. So how do they stand strong in the center of all this? In their social circle, they were comprised of people like Sorcerers, astrologers, magicians, temple prostitutes, and godless teachers, and even even spiritualists, and they talked to the dead even in that time. And they had the pagan priests and some very, very jealous leaders also in the midst of their social circle. And can you imagine the overwhelming temptations and challenge it was to live there? They were forced to learn pagan practices. 
the lives of these three men, these four men, were examined. And as you remember in chapter 1, they were of excellent spirit, ten times better. The world is hungry to see a character that is authentic, to see a character symbolic of a life-changing faith. And their life was in array in the highest of courts of Babylon. They excel, they shine. And as we as Christians need to, be, need to be able to reflect the character of Christ to the surrounding communities we participate in, that we live in. But Daniel 2, as we see the chapter, we're very familiar with it. Many of us, we find the king's dream. We see the gold, the gold representing Babylon, the silver representing Medo-Persia, and the bronze representing Greece, the statue we also see the iron meaning Rome, and we see the mixture of iron and clay, which is the, the time and our history that we're living in. We've heard that storyline, and we're just refreshed by the fact that at the end of that story, there's a rock uncut by human hands, and that no earthly power can resist the crushing blow of God's kingdom setting up an eternity. Amen? We excited about that? Looking forward to that. But... Uh, Nebuchadnezzar calls his wise men because he had a dream. Now, he was struggling because he couldn't remember any of it. It was traumatic at the time, but he couldn't recall anything. And keep in mind, in that culture, the dream that comes to, especially a king, is something sent from the gods above. And when he couldn't pull that together, it was just a time of great anxiety. And he calls his uh, wise men together, and there they come, and they line up all, you know, I'm sure somewhat just a little bit anxious about what was happening. And, and usually the king will say, well, here's what I remember. And he goes, I remember nothing. And they're going, oh, boy, we're in deep trouble. Uh, anything you got, you know, just uh, think through this, king. Anything, nothing, because, you know, if they had a little bit, they could make something up. But there was nothing like that. And the king was furious. So much so, if you remember the storyline, what happened? He decides to establish a decree. You guys are history. You are no help to me. Now, one small problem with this decree is we know who is included in that. Daniel and the three men. Interestingly enough, was any time granted to these wise men to work this out? He wanted to know immediately on the spot. If you didn't come up with something, that's it. Did he give Daniel a little time? Interesting, isn't it? Again, a well-respected character gained favor with the king. He trusted Daniel much more than all the others. Interesting story. Let's go to what Daniel did. He bought some time, and he paused the experience, and the first thing he did, I think, is such a critical step. As we look ahead, as we look in our situation we're in today, the time of tribulation that, that is pending, look at what he did. Daniel chapter 2 again. Go there back with me. Daniel chapter 2. I'm going to read verse 17 to 20.
And it says, And then Daniel went into the house and made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, that they might seek mercies from the God of heaven concerning the secret, so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men. And then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. So Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever. For wisdom and might are his, and he changes the times and the season. He removes kings and raises up kings. Then we go down to verse 24, and it says, Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men in Babylon. That process had begun. And he went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me before the king, and I will tell the king the interpretation. So what was the first thing Daniel did? He knew he had no business handling this situation, not anything of his own strength. And he says he sought mercies, which means they prayed, and he brought his team together. They had a, they had a prayer meeting, probably like not, none they've ever had before. There was a little bit of an, a, of an urgency about this prayer meeting, right? But they came together and they sought the counsel from the Lord, But in verse 24, notice what he said about the wise men. All of his friends stopped killing them. Spare their lives. Would you call them friends? Maybe there were some. But my guess is there were more enemies than friends. Isn't that amazing? He's saying spare these people who absolutely oppose everything that we worship. Spare them. Wow. And he absolutely, when that dream was interpreted, gave 100% of the glory to God, took no credit for any part of it. And that's, again, how we should live our lives, right? All glory to God. And so the trumpet sounds, and thousands now are bowing the knee before this object of worship that we find in Daniel chapter 3, but again, in their minds, they're, they're thinking of understanding and knowing the Ten Commandments that they had learned and they memorized, and, and thou shalt not have any gods before me echoed in their mind, and, and thou shalt not make yourself of any graven image was etched in their mind as well, so there was no chance they were going to bow to anything here, to this hundred-foot statue. And we know how it turned out. We know that Nebuchadnezzar became angry these men that dared to stand up and not worship and bow before him. And the Bible says that, that the fire was raised seven times hotter, kind of what took place this past week. In about a week's time, it got about seven times hotter than what it was earlier. But in Revelation 12, 17, this is no surprise. Just as a reminder, it says, And the dragon was enraged with the woman, which is the church, And he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. There's no secret that Satan is stoking the fire today. There's no secret that the heat is intensifying. And I want to look at some key points in this experience with with these men. First of all, who perished in this fire? The strongest of men that were in the army of the greatest power and civilization of that time. 
they perish just like that. As a reminder, we look out to see that some of the things that seem insurmountable, some of the strongholds of Satan, you know what? God is way bigger than any of that. Just a humble reminder to us. You can throw any strength or any men or any philosophy or whatever you have, but God is way bigger than any of that. That's an encouragement to us today. Another question is, was anything on these men burned? Trick question. Yes, there were some things burned on them. The ropes. They heard that song, My chains are gone, I've been set free. Good news. And there was not a smell of smoke on them. If you, if you, you think about smoke, we think about some places that have to do with a lot of smoke and a lot of fire, and we realize that that is also saying that death and hell has no power over us who are faithful. None. And we know the rest of the story that this golden image, there was forced worship. And the freedoms were taken away. You must worship. Even in the, the, uh, the amazing turnaround of the king, he goes, well, okay now, we'll go from one force to another force. Now, if you don't worship the God of these men, then I will take out your life too, which is a whole opposite, different kind of force. But it's still force. And we know that this 30-day decree is very symbolic of the freedoms that we'll lose to choose whom and how we serve. So why did not God rescue these four men before they got to the lion's den, before they got into the fire? Wouldn't you just be a little bit curious, a little conversation with God? You know, Lord, um, that was a pretty anxious moment in my life. I, if I was to give you any counsel... You know, maybe kind of put out the fire, kind of, you know, let the lions escape, and then, you know, would have been a little bit easier. But there's a real important point to this. As much as it's difficult to consider the trials that even many of us face today, that God will rescue us in the midst of the trials, in the midst of the tribulation. We have a rescuing God. And God says, I will never leave you or forsake you, ever. Huh. There was no compromise, even unto death. No compromise. So a question I have is, relating to Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel, is uh, how did they react in the furnace and in, in the face of the lion's den? Were they A, this is a multiple choice question, were they A, were they kicking and screaming? Were they B, was there weeping and gnashing of teeth? Was there C, uh, were they attacking the enemy? Or D, was there perfect peace and calm? It's an obvious question, right? They were weeping and gnashing. No, they were perfectly calm. Whatever happened, my life is in your hands, Lord. Whatever happens to me, I know where my future is. I will never deny my Lord and Savior. And the term that was used was, but if not, if you don't rescue me, if God doesn't rescue me, there's no chance I'm ever going to compromise my faith. But if not, we know that God honored their faith. 
Well, now we have the situation where we realize who were the ones that were more anxious? It was not these four men. Who were the ones that, according to the Bible, that were the most anxious and lost sleep over this? King Nebuchadnezzar and King Darius really struggled. They needed some melatonin to get to bed because it wasn't working. They were wrestling with all the stuff going on around them. And as we know, we get further in the story and down, we know there was another decree, this one for 30 days, that was uh, set up, let's say, and it was given to the king, and the laws of the Medes Persians, once something is in writing, it never is changed. So the decree went out. I have some questions about Daniel, but we're going to go to Daniel chapter 6 together. Daniel chapter 6. Beginning of verse 10 and 11. And now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home and he, in his upper room and with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. And then these men assembled, found Daniel praying and making up supplication before his God. And let's switch down to verse 16 that we read for our special Worship thought or scripture this morning. It says, So the king gave the command, and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. But the king spoke, saying, Daniel, your God, whom you serve, what? Con- keep that word in mind continually. Continually. Is able to save you. Even a pagan king saw the faith of this man, this special man. Wow. So here's the questions. Did Daniel know about this decree? Yes, he did. Did he close his window and pray in silence and privates? No, he did not. Did he just start praying when this crisis happened? No, he did not. And did he know the consequences if he was caught? Yeah. So it is this, folks, today that I urge you, only by his strength. And that is that as we look at the pending times we're living in, the the days ahead, the tribulation, the trials, the Bible clearly points out to us. Now is the time to anchor our faith in Jesus. And that continual life of worship, that continual intimate connection that they had with their Lord and their Savior was what got them through all of this. Not to be dissuaded or discouraged. We live in a time similar to Babylon. I don't know if you've really done some study on that. I'm not here to highlight events. Okay, that's not my purpose. But it's interesting parallels. We have many, many kings and emperors who are forcing people to worship and have allegiance only to them. You look around in our culture, probably over billions of people, a couple of billion people in our world today have been told that there's only one person you need to worship. That's your king or that's your emperor. 
as well, do, have we seen where nature and, and the natural world has been worshipped? Yeah, very prominent all, all over the world. That's, that's no secret. And then realizing that today, living in our world right now, one in ten Christians, over 100 million people, face or are facing some kind of persecution or force. This is not new. This is common around our world. We, don't, we live in a kind of a safe little bit of a cocoon, but... You know, if anyone has traveled over the world and you realize that this, there's a lot of this going on today, we're blessed, so blessed to have the freedoms we have. And I believe it is very important to understand Scripture, to understand prophecy, to know where we are in the events of the world and the, and the alignment of history. But it says and also in, in Revelation 1, verse 3, these words, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of prophecy and keeps these things which are written in it, for the time is near. So the very entry words of the book of Revelation say, look, know and read. But here's the other side. And we find this verse in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 9, where it says, for we know in part, and we prophesy in part. We aren't going to know every little detail, but everything's going to line up, and we can speculate and guess and wonder, and some of it may be right, and some of it may not be right. But, uh, but we're not called to know all the events that are going to happen. That cannot be our focus. By the way, the second coming is not an event. It's the coming of a person. <laughs> our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Something very exciting. Can't wait. Oh, I almost forgot. I've got to go back to Frank again. Got to complete his storyline here. Why was he so good at counterfeiting? Why? Because he studied the original so well. He knew that original so well. He could duplicate it because of that. He, he looked at real checks. He looked at real driver's license. He looked at real degrees and certificates, and he was so good at duplicating just what he was able to embrace there. So what that says to me and says to us today, it is so much more important that we know and follow the one, the lamb, the, the true in Jesus Christ that we know so well that we will not be deceived, we will not be discouraged when we face the days ahead. And it's this genuine faith that we need to have, and it's not being paralyzed by fear. There's a lot of fear in our church today. Did you know the number one command that Jesus gave as he walked this earth was fear not? Do not be what? Afraid. Oh, to have the peace that these four men had facing what they faced. We see uh, countless stories in Scripture where, where, where the, the storm becomes the focus and, and, and then Jesus being in a boat and Jesus right in front of them on the water in, in countless areas in the Bible where the storms became the focus, the enemy became the focus, and they lost track and they lost their way and then realized that Jesus is right here beside us. That's good news today. He never left us. 
And so as we review some of the points that I've shared today, that we are so anchored in our intimate relationship with Jesus Christ, him and his truth, that we will not be swayed. That we, our lives mirror the real, true picture of Jesus Christ, even so much so that we can learn how to love our enemies. That's what it means to have mature faith. That's what it means to have a character perfected, the ultimate place of love. And that we are not distracted by the, the multitude of idols and, and, and things that surround us. And that we are willing to stand 100% with Jesus Christ and be unaffected by any other distractions. And that our life, our life becomes a loudspeaker in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our storm, become a loudspeaker to the glory of Jesus Christ and his gospel. And then lastly, the guarantee, Jesus will rescue us. As we share a song together, we have this hope, don't we church? Amen.